Hello and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. I'm very excited today to be joined by Otto English to be chatting about his book, Fake History. Now you probably went to school and got a few history lessons and thought maybe that was it. You'd learnt about World War II, you'd learnt about what happened in the Renaissance, and maybe you even dipped into the Tudors. But unfortunately, what I've kind of been finding out recently is that a lot of the history we're taught at school kind of needs some revising. And there are some things that were purposefully left out, or tales that became taller throughout time. Now, Otto English has debunked a few myths here around Winston Churchill, Napoleon, Genghis Khan, Abraham Lincoln. There are many people, including Hitler, who he has dispelled some of the rumours about in his book, Fake History. And I chatted to him about that today on this podcast. Now, very quickly, before we jump into that, please sign up to my mailing list. I'm trying to be a better writer and I need you to give me feedback to tell me if I'm getting any better. The easiest way to do that is go into the description of this episode, click on the top and sign up to my Substack mailing list. I'll appreciate it. That's as much as I can do for you. And finally, just so we can keep the lights on, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Athletic Greens. And information for both of those companies is in the description of this episode. BetterHelp is to get yourself some therapy online for cheaper than your standard face-to-face routes. And Athletic Greens is your all-in-one green shake. I'm pretty happy with them being the sponsors. Therapy for your head and Athletic Greens for your body. I trust those companies. I've used them both. I like them both. If you want to help support the podcast whilst getting yourself some freebies and some money off, head to the link in the description. But without further ado, jump straight into the conversation with Otto English, where I tell him about the fact that I had to text my friend Siobhan, who's been on this podcast before, about a debate we had about England and Ireland. And through reading Otto's book, I owed her an apology. And that is where this conversation kicks off. One thing I noticed while I was reading your book was I had to text my Irish friend and apologise because we'd once had a, a debate about the poppy appeal, which is something you mentioned yeah, yeah. In, in your book. And I'd said, if it wasn't for the English, you'd probably be speaking German. Uh, exactly. What would Ireland have done against Hitler? And of course, that's just from the information I'd had and my lack of like curiosity to go further from, from the baseline. I thought that was the truth. So I brushed a text to my friend and, and there seems to be Churchill was involved in some pretty terrible things with Ireland, right? Like in the twenties. Yeah. Although, um, again, these things get, um, exaggerated on all sides. So, um, and that's another thing, which I mean, I, I, I get, I've been accused of being a woke, hist- I'm not even a historian or a journalist, but I've been accused of being a woke historian who wants to destroy Churchill's reputation. The Black and Tan Star, um, which is when a militia group was basically formed to go in to kind of break up Irish nationalism before it, before it got going. That has long been blamed entirely on Churchill. He did actually suggest it, but then he changed his mind. So what followed is not entirely Churchill's fault. Yeah. You see, if I was, if I was saying that to some very pro-Irish nationalism people, for example, who, who they too might take issue with it and start accusing me of, you know, really writing history. Check what happened with the Black and Tans, which was real and terrible, is bad enough without us having to make make up stuff about it, I think. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to navigate, right? You know, 
it's a difficult thing to navigate because everybody's a bit biased. I'm biased. We're all biased. Um, but, and some, some inaccuracies are not as important as others. You know, as I say in the book, you know, the story of, uh, the cloak being thrown in front of Queen Elizabeth I is a fake, but a fake history. It never happened. Walter Raleigh throwing his cloak so she could walk through a puddle, right? That's not a true story, right? Doesn't really matter. That doesn't matter. It's not going to alter the course of history that Walter Raleigh never threw a cloak into a puddle. Doesn't matter. Yeah. But things like Dunkirk or the Back and Terrans, that does matter because that's relevant now. Yeah, that's interesting. So I had um, Tessa Dunlop on to chat about uh, army girls and, and she enlightened yeah. on, on like women's role in, in World War. And I was like, wow, had no idea. And further with Dunkirk, like I've, all I know of Dunkirk is that Harry Styles was there, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, well, I think it's particularly humbling being English, but I'm saying that as an English person, because I'm sure it's the same for everyone else. But to know that the romanticized war stories are not as romantic as they've been made out to be. And that is the case with Dunkirk. So from from your understanding and for people listening, what what happened at Dunkirk? So over the weekend, I was at this uh, festival in Bath and I was talking about Dunkirk. And uh, as, as I said, what I'm about to say, there was a couple on the front uh, front row. Uh, I would guess in their 60s. And as I said, what I'm about to say, the woman literally grabbed her husband's arm and said, did you know this? <laughs> and this is what happened. Uh, films, including the Harry Styles one, which my daughter has banned me from watching with her because I've ruined it. Films, including the Harry Styles one, and one made uh, in about, uh, 19, well, late in the 1950s, a famous film about Dunkirk and, and other stories around the story of Dunkirk. Okay. They all have perpetuated this same myth that in 1940, the retreating British expeditionary force ended up on the beaches at Dunkirk. That myth's true. And that they couldn't be got off. That's partially true. And that as a result, ordinary British people jumped in their pleasure cruisers, rowing boats, fishing vessels, etc., and went across to Dunkirk in a sort of operation to take them off. That isn't true. Now, part of it is true in that, yes, the Royal Navy requisitioned boats from the South Coast, but it was the Royal Navy and the Coast Guard that requisitioned boats. And it's also true that some fishermen, but not just British fishermen, Belgian, uh, Dutch, British fishermen also went to help. That, so that bit is true. So there were ordinary merchant seamen there, so not Royal Naval officers. But the idea that John Smith in Portsmouth hopped in his boat and went across is complete nonsense. Didn't happen. Right? Now, when you say this to people, <laughs> a lot of people, including actually my publisher, he actually ran me up when he was reading the first draft of the book and said to me, are you absolutely sure that? It's a shame, though. It is a shame that that's true. It's, it's cooler it's the other way. It's a fantastic story. Yeah, it's a fantastic story. Um, 
the, the story, there was a film made, a Hollywood film called Mrs. Miliver that was made in the middle of the war. It was a propaganda war film about the British, the plucky British standing up against the Nazi warship. And Mrs. Miniver, as far as I can <coughs> divine, is the source of that, of that myth. Because in Mrs. Miniver, there is a scene where Mr. Miniver says, oh, I've got to go to Dunkirk to take people off. Now you don't actually see him go. You don't actually see him go, but he sort of goes out and then he comes back a bit later and he's all sort of shattered from spirits. So that myth perpetuated. Um, in war, narrative is extremely important. And we're seeing that now in Ukraine. And Zelensky, who I'm a great admirer of, is a master, master narrator. He has seized control of the narrative and created it's a good narrative because he, they are clearly the injured party. Ukraine just as Britain and Western Europe were clearly the, the injured party in 1939, 40. Yeah. But he's molded uh, a, a narrative around it. To, he's told a story and he is a storyteller. He's yeah. a writer. Yeah. So yeah, it's quite talented, isn't he? Very. Yeah. Plate Paddington. As you, did you know that? Yeah, yeah, because I, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw he was really rich, and I was like, well, how? <laughs> I don't know, I'm that much. <laughs> I'm obsessed with people being corrupt at the moment. I was looking for all these kind of reasons. Well, um, no, people will come at you with, oh, he was mentioned in the Panama Papers and things yeah, like yeah. that. But um, everybody was mentioned. I mean, I wasn't, were you? But everyone else was. I wouldn't well, yeah. I'd have loads of money. <laughs> <laughs> It's um, it is interesting because because narrative and story is what our minds attached to, isn't it? And I, I know someone who met a Russian, and I, I trust this person, my source. And apparently, the Russian he met was a hundred percent certain that Ukraine needed liberating from Nazis. And it goes to show that like Putin's a great storyteller. I know mm. he, he controls all the media, so it makes makes it kind of a bit easier yeah. for him. But it just goes to show that these stories are so important when nationalism comes into play and touch on that in the book about the dangers of nationalism and i guess that means the importance of true history so we don't have these stories yeah. that make us think that we are these like we descend from brave sailors yeah. who just saw casual people who can row across the channel when yeah. the reality is we're all at home shitting ourselves or on the way to yeah <laughs> well i mean you know all nations are built out of myths you know all of them so Ru Russia, I mean, I, I, in my previous job, I used to meet a lot of Russians. Russians, like the Chinese, like the British, they all believe these fundamental myths about their history. And uh, during the recent war, we've seen them trotted out again and again with regard to Russia. You know, Russia is worried about its borders. Russia has its historical areas of influence. Russia this, Russia that. By British people, British people trot it out like it's some sort of given, you know, like we all forever have to be prisoners of our history because this is how it is and this is how it always will be. It's like almost like religious liturgy. It's not like, it's not like you're allowed to be anything other than what you are, have been born into. It's interesting you say that about like it being like religion, because it was in around the 1800s that Nietzsche mm. was like, this is the death of God. And then mm. I, I don't know, in your research, did you come across that much nationalism pre 1800s? You mentioned so, yeah, they, how well, English divided. Are, mm. Nation states are a relatively modern phenomenon. 
which we, which again, we forget, you know, um, uh, I mean, really 18th, 18th century onwards, but prior to that people, the most, the vast majority of people define themselves by the village they came from or the family they came from. They, they didn't, you know, you might go off to war with France at some point and you might have Shakespeare writing, you know, God for Harry, uh, England and St. George. But the vast majority of people weren't that bothered. Nationalism is a very, very good tool. Patriotism is a very good tool for getting people to go and die in a trench somewhere. <laughs> and, and whilst you might, and whilst you might sometimes need that, as we need it in World War II, my father actually, who had me late in life, he was in his fifties when I was born. My father wasn't at Dunkirk, but he was in a machine gun post on the South coast, disguised as a postcard, um, shop, uh, in 1940, waiting for the Germans to come. And he, he genuinely did think that there was a chance they would be coming wow. for about a week, for about a week, one week and then the evacuation, he didn't think they were going to come. And I, I think dad's army and programs like that kind of programmed later generations into thinking that the nation was constantly thinking for the remainder of the war that there was a chance the Germans would come but of course that's not what happened yeah yeah it's so interesting um, I've only just started to care about history I'm, like, yeah, yeah. I'm drip feeding myself into all of these topics that when I was at school seemed maybe quite elitist right um, and to learn about them seemed as if it was an elitist thing. So books like yours are really important because it's not elitist. It's really accessible. And it's like, hey, here are the things you've kind of been taught. And here's how some of it's bullshit and some of it's true. What was like the most exciting chapter that you wrote in the book that made you think, you know what? yes, people need to hear this? I think definitely the World War II chapter is the is the important one because that is so. so, so and I will give you another example because we have to yeah. talk about that. But I think that is so critical to how everybody born after it views the world and our country. It's critical to things like Brexit, and it's critical to um, Boris Johnson and our current government. It's a critical thing, and. And we need to understand it properly in context. That's extremely important. It also feeds into all of the other stuff about our history, like yeah. worship of statues, which is particularly odd. You know, why do we put some people on plinths and not others? You know, it's so, strange. They, it's very odd. Like, most of the statues, I can't remember the exact percentage. I do put it in the book, but something like ninety-eight percent of the statues in London are of men, right? So yeah. once, once you start say, I think it's more than that. It might even be 99%. Once you start, I, I can't actually off the top of my head, think of any prominent statues to women in London, apart from Edith Cavill, who was killed in the first of all, anyway. There is a Paddington bear though. Paddington bear. <laughs> once you start, um, once you start setting what history is and who the players were and who the heroes are and you ignore the mass of others. So for example, during the second world war, a lot, a, a good proportion, not the majority, but about 20% of the members of the special operations executive, the spying 
the people who went behind enemy lines to send back messages to London and get people out and organize escape routes, they were women. Yeah. Now, now people like Violet Zasbo are people have dimly heard of them, but there are many, many women uh, who ended up in concentration camps with a bullet in the back of their head, who are heroic British figures, um, who history has just ignored. Yeah. There's no statue. There's no. I don't think there's even a statue to Violet Zasbo. That history has just kind of ignored these people. Whereas Douglas Bader who was like a famous pilot and ace. I think there are two statues to him. He's a fun character, fun character, uh, uh, spitfire pilot, gets shot down in the early stages of the war, ended up in Calders. So he's a fun character. Why, but why have we got two statues to him and none to uh, the women of the SOE, for example? So the whole narrative gets warped. It becomes men's history for men by men. Um, and I'm a man and I've written a book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You but need to take, did, take back control of the narrative. <laughs> well, that was it. But I also wanted, I did want to make it entertaining and fun. And I wanted to bring that to it and a bit of humor and a bit, and a bit of spiky politics in that. I didn't want it yeah. to be a dull read. That was my mission statement to myself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you did a pretty good job of that. And it, it's interesting <laughs> we're talking about statues because I've just seen uh, the other day that Margaret Thatcher's statue went up and yeah. in like a couple of hours it had already been egged <laughs> i know i know yes it grabbed them yeah they were worried that if they put it up i mean i mean i joked at the time or twitter it, it, there's another weird thing and i think we're learning a lesson here mm. because margaret thatcher is so familiar to all of us we'll get it looks nothing like margaret thatcher it does make me wonder whether uh sculptors have got worse or whether this has always been the case and whether all the sculptures are actually nothing like <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me yeah it really wouldn't surprise me like i can't imagine everyone in greece was like ripped and trended <laughs> and beautiful like, they can't all be like the ones i know of like uh socrates was apparently hideous yes <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like he wasn't, he wasn't too ripped, and he walked towards something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think it's definitely the sculptors. <laughs> Maybe it's, it has always been this way. Um, so we we spoke about propaganda not not too long ago. Yeah. I'd like to go back on this because this is something I I've, I may have been falling into a trap of this, and it's about like an attitude towards China. So like. It, with the Chinese government, I'm, I'm very conflicted. I don't know them personally. I have no experience. I just see what I see of the um, super awesome re-education camps that are yeah. obviously yeah, 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 horrendous. Yeah, yeah. And um, well, like their current lockdown measures, like telling people they don't have rights. And I'm skeptical because I don't know if these videos that I'm seeing are put together and they are propaganda because you just never know now the trust has been taken from underneath us but what has your mind changed on china a bit since writing the book so yeah it's, i'm glad you said that because i i wandered off on a path about soa and you, your original question about <laughs> 10 minutes ago was what other ones were revelatory to you uh so um i known a lot of people from China over again through my previous job from a decade back. I met a lot of Chinese people. 
um, Chinese a lot, and I spend a lot of time in one-to-one situations with Chinese people, lawyers, things like that in London. Um, and I think that most people in the West, even well-intentioned people, tend to be people from that region, East Asia and Southeast Asia, as a sort of, sort of homogenous mass of people. Um, and that it feeds very much, as I say in the book, into this old notion of yellow peril and that, um, that, that there are these dastardly people in the East who are plotting to, to overtake us all. Blah, 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 blah. Now the Chinese, you've got to separate that as you just did from the Chinese state, the communist party, which still rules China and their intentions, um, particularly over places like Taiwan. Yeah. but also the global intentions, those things should worry us. And we should be, I mean, I sometimes get invited onto Chinese state television and I always refuse as I refuse with Russian state television and yeah. as I refuse Turkish state television, because I'm not going to be part of your propaganda network. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I don't say I was polite to client. Yeah, but, be very uh, polite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never know if you're going to. All right. Um, so that, that's one thing. But how we view uh, East Asia and how we view Chinese people is problematic, in my opinion. And I write about that not with regard to China, but I do with regard to North Korea, which for many people in our region and in our country is a sort of joke country with joke people in it. And it's all like some sort of, you know, national lampoons or something like that. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's a problem, and I think that has to be fixed. I think we have to view those people as they are living under a tyranny, not people living under a comical figure out of um, Team of America. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I do think uh, I think whoever wrote um, Team America, right, South Park, yeah. they, they do quite a good job of using comedy to bring attention to these the hypocrisy yeah, yeah, yeah. in the West of how we're like, oh, just get on with things. Don't worry about it. it. Isn't it so funny that you have a dictator who keeps 20 million people in slavery and makes them eat? Yes. Ah, ha, ha. Savages. It's, yeah. Uh, this, this isn't the attitude. And and I find it so troubling because I, I used to be quite like right-leaning when I was younger. Then I was a bit more left-leaning and now I'm trying to keep myself as central as I possibly can without attaching to any kind of ideology. Um. The hypocrisy I see is people in North Korea have like no human rights. Yeah. This is like um Stalin, like it's like having Stalin back and but everyone yes. in the gulag. And yeah. it, and people don't know about it because no one can leave. And uh, there was a young E Park, I think. Um, yes. She, yeah, well, I she went on Joe yeah. Rogan, she went on a massive circuit. Yeah. And it was one of the most touching podcasts I've ever listened to. I like I cried yeah. during it. It doesn't seem like an existence at all. And they have no words for happiness or love and, and yeah. crazy things like that. And I, I guess that's the issue is people like that get ignored because a communist government takes all the limelight and we're like, gosh, yeah, those guys in the East savages, they haven't got a clue. And it makes us quite dispassionate to over billions of people. Yes, uh, exactly that. You know, I, I also, and as I also point out in the book, you know, we, we are very mocking of them. I mean, well, your points about the South Park 
do. I, I suppose I'm like, I mean, my kids, both teenagers, have really got me into South Park. I watched yeah. it years ago, but I watched it. There was, a, there was some brilliant, I can't remember what the recent series, where there was like every episode, there was like a school shooting at the school, but they've become so normal. The lessons were just carrying on. I thought it was yeah. one of the most brilliant pieces of satire I think I've ever seen. I mean, it was just yeah. like chaos and like the teachers carrying on. Anyway, yeah. um, you know, we, we've got to start, uh, we've got to stop thinking of ourselves as the number one people and everybody else is somehow secondary. And I think that goes to North Korea as well. You know, when the previous Kim died, there were those semi-comical scenes of people crying in the streets and sort of banging and wailing. And it was much picked up on, on Twitter and social media and YouTube um, and Facebook. But of course, you know, you then look at the scenes when Diana dies and the, the footage is there on YouTube. People wailing and crying in the streets. Yeah. Yes, they're not banging their fists on the ground. But, but the wail, the wail of noise as her car pulls out, as the hearse pulls out on that final journey is frightening. Actually, yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's frightening. It's a loud crying noise of a crowd. It's very, very strange. So even as we mock the North Koreans for crying in the street for the death of one of their kins, we have to remember that not so long ago, just over 20 years ago, British people supposedly reserved supposedly stiff upper lip, all the things that we say that we are, we're standing crying in the street over a poor woman who died in a car crash. Yeah. Yeah. There's a two, there's like a couple of things at play there, right? It's like this fetishization of celebrity that we have and Diana especially being one. And secondly is we, we, we. Yeah, there you go. We, there we go. We, we are. Can't help we, it. We, we. People yeah. in, at Diana's funeral did not have to cry. It's most likely that people in North Korea absolutely have to cry. And if they're seen not to express like a negative emotion at the death of, of Kim Jong, whichever one it was. Yeah, uh, Kim Jong, uh, Kim Jong Il. Yeah, uh, Kim yeah. Il Jong. Yes. Yeah. Um, they have to. It'll be like Alexander Solzhenitsyn's story in, in the Gulag Archipelago of the, the guy who was clapping and stopped after 11 minutes. And then was like yeah, sent to sent to a forced labor camp the next day. Yeah. It was like never be first to yeah. stop. Yeah. Whereas in the UK we don't have that, so that was like a voluntary. Ah, but you say that, but uh, now, of course it's not to that extent, right? But mm. it's a brave television presenter who goes on TV in the first two weeks of November who doesn't wear a poppy. Yes, true, actually. Right, and and it's an exceptionally brave. Uh, black or Asian British TV presenter who goes on on TV in in the first two weeks of November doesn't wear a poppy because we know that you can dip that back into the archive and you can dip into Twitter and see all the racist abuse that comes people's way if they don't yeah. happen to be white and they forget to wear a poppy or the poppy as in one case dropped out of the jacket of somebody and then oh they hate our country. Isn't it so bizarre? Yeah, so so I agree with you, and I yeah. I, I am I don't want to you know be pillorying for comparing the, our country to North Korea mm -hmm. because obviously we live in a democracy and we're having this conversation, but the idea that there are not 
norms of behavior that are expected of people in this country. And that if you step out of line, you, I mean, uh, as I say in the book, I, about six years ago, when I was talking about how puppy thing was beginning to worry me, I went on to three counties radio and the guy rang in and said, uh, he has a right to say what he likes, but I think he should be shot. What does that sound like? <laughs> that, that, it was like a member of the public. Like it was okay. Wow. It was like this guy, I don't agree with this guy, so I think he should be shot. It's ridiculous. Now, of course, in North Korea, I would have been shot, but I would never have got on the radio. <laughs> yes, well, that's very true. <laughs> this, is, this is what I like about, about your book, is, is you agree with people to the, to the extent, and then you're like, but just look at this. Well, yeah. it's, it's not a use of word, but it's an and. Yes, I don't, it's not but, it's definitely and, yeah. Yeah. Well, like I think that. we we have to be on guard to that. You know, I, I've had over the last few days, I've had an extended Twitter quarrel because I spotted that there was a fake um, Churchill quote on the wall of a school here in you know London. I I, 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 I spotted it that, that this very self-promoting head teacher, the Britain's bossiest head mistress. Upstairs. I spotted it, I spotted it, and I saw this, this quote on the video, and I screen grabbed it, and then put it out on Twitter, and it went far, and and, and I felt like, I, you know, I'd been traveling around the country talking to people about my book, and I, and I felt I was beginning to go mad, I, I began to start to doubt, I started to doubt myself, because I was so, I had so many messages from quite well-known people, including a peer of the realm, telling me that it didn't matter. Yeah, there was an overreaction that because this school had this fake Churchill quote on them, I was somehow bullying this headmistress for the CBE because I had pointed it out very politely. I'd very politely pointed it out. Um, it was, it was the ensuing digging in by her and her supporters that created the Twitter storm. It was the sort of refuse to accept the daily wrong. And, you know, you, you, it might, again, it might be like the water rally throwing his cloak in the puddle thing. It might seem unimportant, but it, Churchill is such a big figure in this country. If you can't get a quote on a school war, right, then what hope for us, to be honest? Yeah, it is, it is bizarre that you <laughs> don't value the truth. And like, I'm, no. I'm so happy to be speaking to you because you do seem like one of those people who's quite like me, who just can't seem to understand why the truth doesn't matter that much. <laughs> it's like, where, where, has, where has it all gone wrong for us yeah. that it's not true, but it doesn't matter? It's like, yeah, it yeah. kind of does. Because yeah. we're like, a, one brilliant thing I found online is Sam Harris's essay, short book. Yeah. He says, that, like, as soon as you lie to someone, you are denying them access to reality. It's like, yeah. Who puts us in a position to be able to do that? Who says that that's fair, that we should deny someone a reality, even if it is just just a Churchill quote? It, wouldn't it be better if everyone kind of knew the truth about Churchill before yeah. that four-year stretch? I know yeah. there's a good way that people can by obviously reading your book. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I find it so frustrating that people do not value truth so much. Yes. And, and again, I say it's on both sides. Not everything Churchill did. Yeah was good or bad he was a human being yeah but the nation has elevated him to the status of a secular kind of god and um 
and and that's really the, the thread. You pull at that thread, uh, and the rest of the conceit starts to fall apart. So it's it's not a bad thing to say this is what really happened. And and likewise, if if you if you I mean, I've made mistakes. There were mistakes in the first um, edition of the book. In fact, there was a howling mistake in the book, which nobody spotted, right? Oh, wow. A, a proper howler. So I, and I will, I will confess on your show what, it, what okay. it was, right? In the book, I said that Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address on the eve of Gettysburg and the Battle of Gettysburg quite why i wrote that god only knows right because <laughs> the <London book. laughs> most well so i wrote that which is one thing right it didn't he gave the address uh spontaneously pretty much spontaneously the, the gettysburg address wasn't actually by lincoln there was another guy who spoke first for like and two what, hours what was it that so the Gettysburg address is like Four years and da, 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 our forefathers came in. It's like a, probably the most famous. Okay, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, it's very shuffled and it is great. It's a cracking speech that, that we believe all men were created equal. That, that speech. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, he actually gave it uh, on the day that the, the cemetery to the fallen at Gettysburg was committed. Right? Yeah. And that was weeks or months later I'll, I'll be completely honest i didn't know that yeah I, in my head he had given the gettysburg address as a rousing um speech to the game before the pre-game thing and i hadn't bothered to check and i put it in the book and the guy who two people actually who fact checked the book who were brilliant they also missed it and it went to print and actually, I think somebody actually sent me a message saying that they'd spotted it, but it was either that or I, or I was watching something and it came out, but there was an, oh my God, realization. I yeah. put this howler, howler in the book. Well, there are several other fairly small mistakes in the first edition of the book, which people very, several historians and academics wrote to me. They said they loved the book popular body body body, but you've made this tiny error. It was like small nobody apart from that one person I think had spotted this absolute howler in the middle of the book. Now I'm telling you, and I would be happy to confess it to anybody, because I wrote a long book. There's a huge amount of detail and facts in it. And I made a mistake. Yeah. And I'm an idiot. I should have flipping fact-checked it rather than just go, oh, I know that. Uh, oh, <laughs> but I didn't, but I didn't because we're all capable of making mistakes. We're all capable of making big errors. And it's what we do with that. Do we dig down and insist that black is white and nice is day? Or do we go, yeah, but I cocked up. Yeah, I think it's actually better that you did make a mistake because then you actually get to practice what you preach and be like, yeah, there you go, I fucked up. So maybe yeah. I'm a bit suspicious that you did it on purpose, but <laughs> I do understand that it's a long book. It was a, it was a long wake at night moment because I thought, oh God, they're going to come after me now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
this is actually totally unrelated and not a planned question, but uh, you are a oh. political commentator, so I'd love to get your opinion oh. on how you see the social climate at the moment, if we're looking Huxleyan or Orwellian. <laughs> it's a binary choice. <laughs> yeah. or, or whatever else you want to say. I mean, it's very hard to predict what will happen next uh, in the UK. It's very hard to predict. I base my opinion of what will happen with Boris Johnson or my experience of living under two terms of him as Mayor of London. When people first elected Boris Johnson Mayor of London, I was literally like, are you, are you all fucking mad? <laughs> Have you all lost your marbles? This is London. One of the reasons Boris Johnson was elected in London was that the Evening Standard back then, that's pre-Lebedev, just pre-Lebedev, was very pro-Boris Johnson. And mm. people saw him as this fun figure and dodgy, 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 dodgy. Uh, then Lebedev took over and the Evening Standard, which has such a huge influence or had, in the pre-internet era, had a huge influence in London and swaying opinion, went behind him and blah, 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 and he got a second term, at which point I thought, you right, you've now gone completely mad. We've lived through the London riots and you've still elected him, even though he refused to come back from his holiday in Florida. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> over the course of those two terms, I think Londoners came to see who Boris Johnson was and um, he jumped before he stood again. I don't think he would have won a third term. And it, and it concluded with his Garden Bridge project, which is classic Johnson, a fucking pointless nowhere-to-nowhere -nowhere bridge that celebrities wanted and wealthy people wanted and which they invested loads of money in and it was never built. And like a, a sort of fantastical idea, you know, like a, a ridiculous, a ridiculous idea pointless, particularly when you live here where I live in South East London, where we've got such problems crossing the damn river anyway. The last thing the city needs is a garden bridge, you know. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people have woken up to Boris Johnson, so it depends whether he can ride it through to the next general election, which I increasingly think he will try to do, uh, or if the court Tory party stabs him in the back and puts somebody else in. Um, that Labour, who knows, has to up its game. However, all of that is a sideshow because we're living in an internet age and people like my kids and people in their 20s, 30s, teenagers, a lot of people increasingly just don't see all the stuff that I grew up with around them. They don't care about the monarchy. My kids have no interest in things like that. And I think the vast majority of people of that generation just aren't interested in that. And also, the internet is a very good thing. You know, yeah. it's I'm, I'm a big fan of the internet and and uh, social media. I think it's a good thing. It's a massive democratizing tool. It's a bit like the invention of printing. Yeah. Suddenly, anybody, some idiot like me, can suddenly start spouting off, you know, and give an alternative opinion. The grip that the old media had has been very much loosened. The grip that the old political systems had is very much loosened. That's where potentially a better world or a worse world, <laughs> that fork we're at in the road. So yeah. the battle for truth, the battle against disinformation, the battle to understand 
where we all came from and the battle that battleground is critical and i suspect ukraine will come to be seen almost as a sort of metaphor for those wider battles okay okay which is not a full answer to the question but i think i think in the next in the course of the next 20 30 years i think there will be radical change in this country and i think it could be for the better because history does show us that in general things tend to improve even if we think they're getting worse yeah so i, I can't no, see institutions i can't see institutions like the house of lords surviving yeah. when when we're kids generation grow up because i what the hell mm. what is that you know like the country's run by hogwarts or something yeah. you know. <laughs> so without the magic or all the you know all that funny game on broomsticks yeah it's it's very tv isn't it to yeah. the uk government it's very self yeah it's, like it, it's in a your very book. nice analogy there <laughs> yeah they, um tv in the digital age yeah they they didn't set like they didn't start paying mps until it was 1911 i think you said yeah that. yeah yeah like it just goes to show how one month. anyone it's just old blokes yeah. i've got hope really i mean i wouldn't mind being one it sounds like it'd be a great job we need to reduce the number of mps and we need to increase the quality yeah yeah it's how to I mean, them in <laughs> it's such a big question isn't it, know, there was a time and again I'm, I'm very anti-nostalgia okay mm. however having said that <laughs> that's my get out of jail from uh alec douglas hume uh which was 1964 to tony blair you had no public school prime ministers right and public school is so, not paid for correct because i think sometimes so private private school there were yeah. no private school products yeah uh all of the, those people uh factor included had come up uh from sort of you know, John Major, uh, the the only famously the only man in history who ran away from circus to become a bank manager. That is a good it's fact. A, it's a slightly <laughs> real? exaggerated story. It's, it's that was, we need to encourage people who aren't sort of posh professionals to mm. become politicians and to bring some vision because that's the other trouble. There's total lack of vision. Everyone's looking backwards. This is what we used to do. Whereas then people used to look forward. And it, was, it sounds again like yeah, yeah. nostalgia. But people like Harold Wilson or even Thatcher, they, they had an agenda. They said, this is what we're going to do to make the country better. This government is, this is what Winston Churchill did. We're going to protect those statues. People need to be proud of the flag. Everyone needs to sing God Save the Queen. That's not a bloody policy agenda, no. is it? <laughs> it's ridiculous. And I guess this is where someone like Trump comes in and makes promises of bringing something back and making something great again and getting your pride, like someone who's pragmatic in that way. And he just captures the hearts of us because we willed, I guess, at the end of the day. There's a lot of people out there who are just like, oh, fuck it, yep. it seems like a good idea. Yes, but you see, again, Trump was, I mean, Trump based his Trump's. Uh, reputation was based on American Apprentice. I mean, it's as yeah. simple as that. It was such a hugely influential show in America. 
people genuinely, apparently even Trump believed that he was Donald Trump in The Apprentice because he's that stupid. He's obviously got something about him. He's obviously a narcissist and, and clearly manipulative. Yeah. But like, there's something about him that can't be stupid because he managed it. And it's like, I, I don't know what it is. Because, uh, well, actually, I guess that's uncomfortable because if he's not stupid, we are. <clears throat> we, the general public. I didn't vote for him, didn't live in America, and I wouldn't have, but it's easier to assess the group or assess one individual as stupid than it would be to assess the group as stupid, if you know what I mean. I, he undoubtedly had charisma. There's also, I mean, my, my, uh, in my twenties, I was, I worked in the theater. You don't really work in the theater. You just turn up and don't eat. You know, but that's just <laughs> the reason you can afford cigarettes. You can't afford anything else. Oh, I, sorry. I, um, in my twenties, I was in theater and, and, um, stages are very important, interesting things. You can put someone on a stage, uh, in front of an audience and something magical happens. People look up. Hence expression, look up, people look up and they, uh, the person has power just by did putting somebody on a stage under a spotlight, that person automatically gets a certain status. Yeah. And if you then give someone a title, whether it be Lord, president, prime minister, minister, whatever, and put them on that stage under a spotlight you elevate that status further. And if you then get somebody with a bit of charisma and you add all those factors together, you've got quite a potent force, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that person's got a plan. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and that's what happened with Boris Johnson and Trump. Yeah, I get yeah, that. They're good, on, they're good on the stage, under the spotlight, basking in the limelight, but the, there was no real plan. And what Thatcher had, you know, I mean, it might surprise people, but, you know, I'm not a fan of Thatcher, but to Thatcher's credit, she had smart people around her with a proper agenda. There's not one I agreed with, but they had an agenda. She had intellectuals around her, intelligent people saying, this is what we need to do to make this country better. Whether she did make it, whether it is, you know, the jury's out, but yeah. that she had an agenda. It was the same with Wilson, people like that. Yeah. yeah, it's a very confusing area to navigate, isn't it? Politics, history. Yes. <laughs> how, long, how, long, how long did it take you to write the book, by the way? Uh, very, quite quick. Yeah. Quite quick, quite quick. Yeah, so I, I spent like a year uh, planning it and it with my agent so i kept yeah. writing it i did this it was a bit like being with a school teacher yeah he said that's that's crap that's good i like that uh and i that i obviously was earning money in between so i, I sort of there was a bit of toing and throwing and then um weirdly um the week of the black lives matter protests so that's 2020 june 2020 i think yeah uh five four or five publishers were all interested in it. And I, I was pitching the book literally as the, um, why it's what happened in London, but, uh, the protests were happening in London. 
Uh, and so uh, suddenly it was just pure coincidence. Yeah. So the published well back that took me on, um, we then had some turning and praying and then, uh, I wrote it in four months. Wow. That is rapid. So, well done. Yeah. That's really, well, I, put, I literally put everything else to the side, ignored my family. <laughs> <laughs> and I sat at the table I'm sitting at here and, um, and wrote it out, which felt really good. It was really good just to write it out because I got the rhythm and the cadences and the, and, and I, I also thought of it a bit like a play. I, I thought I'll have themes that come back and, uh, come back and just novelistic. So I, uh, I was good writing it. Yeah. And was that cause like your research was of that quality where it was just like, these are going to slot in to here. So, yeah, because I'd worked on the idea for a year and it's some of the stuff that's in the book, I'd written articles about before. So, mm -hmm. I mean, for example, I'm an expert level on Boris Johnson and, yeah. uh, and I'd, written, I'd written loads of articles, Politico and Byline about the comparisons between Johnson and uh, Churchill and 1.2 yeah. stretching back almost a decade. So I knew all the, all the early stuff. I put the other stuff in, including the North Korea stuff, because it interested me. Yeah. Uh, and, this, um, and I wanted to, I wanted the book to have a, like a sort of big, a big scope. I didn't want it just be about England or Britain or whatever. I wanted to, I wanted it, to, I wanted a bit to be a Kazakh style and a bit to be, bam! And I think if I write another book, I'll, I'll do that to the max. Bam, yeah, bam. To really expand it out. I think it's yeah. one of those things, because with a book like this, if you focus too much on England and the West, people on the right will accuse you of being like a terrorist sympathizer for just focusing on England. They'll, they'll jump to that conclusion, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely- also boring. It's also boring, you know? I mean, yeah. the, the, the stuff which fascinates me is, um, you know, it, 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 there is, the world is full of so many fascinating stories from history, but we keep telling the same stories over and over again. We keep telling the stories of World War II and Warren and Churchill and Hitler and Donald, and that's all in the book. But I'm also interested in the origins of uh, Jewish, the North Korean political philosophy. I'm also, uh, I'm slightly obsessed with the story, which I tell at the end of the book about the tailor in Paris who I don't, don't, don't so there's a tailor in Paris in 1910. He's called Franz or something. I always refer to him as Franz. Anyway. I do remember this. He, not fully. He, tries, he decides he's going to invent a parachute. Yes. And, do remember it. And he, yeah, he's a tailor and he designs a parachute uh, because there's a big competition going on with big prize money for whoever can invent the parachute. And then he declares he's won the contest and he will demonstrate his parachute and he climbs up onto the first story of Eiffel Tower and jumps and within a second has created a large hole underneath the Eiffel Tower because his parachute looked great, but it didn't work. Uh, that story fascinates me. It fascinates me because it's a, an almost perfect demonstration of the Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> I became rather obsessed with the Dunning-Kruger effect a couple of months ago. So I've been doing this yeah. podcast for just over two years now. And I started, as you'd expect, thinking I knew everything. And I am 
deep in the dip of the Dunning Kruger at the moment. <laughs> I really, I am really, really stupid, and I have to do something about that. So I'm just trying yeah, to climb really out the other side. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one of the smartest people I know who's a friend of mine called Pat. He's a he's a law lecturer at the university. But he and I were at university together, early nineties. And I remember uh, him sort of saying to me, year three or whatever it was at the university, he said to me, Do you know, I genuinely know less than when we turn up here. So. <laughs> but of course he didn't. No. He just discovered all the stuff he didn't know. The shame that happens, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you get people doing like, yeah, 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 I know everything. And that's, um, you know, and then you realize you, there's so much you don't know. That's good. It's good. Yeah. We'll never know everything. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's quite a healthy thing to do. It's like a healthy sense of just how stupid you you really <laughs> or at least just how little you know. Because the people who want to like preserve their sanity are like, oh, well, I, I do know quite a bit about this and I must be kind to myself. I was like, I'd rather be like, yeah, I'm pretty stupid and I'm just going to do all I can to not be like that, even though I know it's a never ending battle. Um, yeah. And that's why I think books like yours are, are brilliant because it's like, oh, I have been so naive and I've just taken things on face value. Um, and maybe, maybe, just maybe you're doing that to me because I'm not going to fact check anything that was, that was in that book. I did I did not lie in the book. I, I said, and it's very God. The other day, <laughs> well, I put a deliberate lie about Trump. Uh, what's hilarious is the people who guess what the lie is get it all get it wrong. I couldn't. They all even... speak the lie. The lie I put in there, I won't say what it is, but but everybody there, there's a story in there about how Trump claimed that during the American War of Independence in 1776, whatever it was. Uh, the rebels took control of the air bases, and that's how they won the Americans in the war. Well, of course, you know, the airplane hadn't been invented for another 130 to 40 years. And several people have come up to me and gone, I don't know what the lie is. It's the one about Trump and the air bases. No, he really did say that. Oh, he's such he a legend. Trump really did say that in the American Civil War, uh, American War of Independence, people had seized control of the air bases. Is that, it's, well, you couldn't make that up, actually, could you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, um, that's fascinating. Uh, so will there be another one coming out? I did see a tweet. So doing? I, yes, so... I'm in discussion about a second project and it will be of a similar vein, but I don't want to write the same book twice. So that's why I'm fluffing around. I, I don't want it to be, I mean, my, my, my joke to my kids is I don't want to write Police Academy too. <laughs> so just like, like a shit sequel, we won't be getting. Yeah, so if we get a sequel, it'll be good. The Jump Street sequel, where they make those brilliant jokes actually about how it's a sequel. But I don't want to just be doing. I don't want to. I don't want to just be doing. Uh, I don't want to just be doing a sequel. I want it to have merit on its own terms and whatever. But um, and just wind up a whole new group of people. Yeah. Right. I'm really looking forward to it. If uh, anyone listening wants to follow you or, or, or your work, where would be the best place for them to find so, out? Uh, Twitter, there is Otto underscore English. 
bizarrely somebody else took that moment first. Don't know what was going on there. Um, and, you know, I, I pop up on YouTube uh, with Byline TV every now and then and write for the Byline Times and Politico and sometimes the New Statesman. So I am, I'm around like a, like a bad smell. <laughs> I'm certainly going to be keeping a close eye on, on yourself. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to chat to well, you. Thanks for you. Hey, everybody, that's it. That is the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Sign up to my mailing list. Sponsors are in the description. And as always, 